yes, it is very appropriate to be on here on Zoom with you recording these before uh, going into the interview with Eric. <laughs> if only we had our uh, our notes on Viva. Although I think it's a little bit out of our strike zone in terms of like perfect market. We would be the only podcasters in the world using Viva. Peter is very focused on clear and correct target markets. Yes. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Sit me down. Say it straight. Another story on the way. Who got the truth? Welcome to this special episode of Acquired, the podcast about great technology companies and the stories and playbooks behind them. I'm Ben Gilbert, and I'm the co-founder and managing director of Seattle-based Pioneer Square Labs and our venture fund, PSL Ventures. And I'm David Rosenthal, and I am an angel investor based in San Francisco. And we are your hosts. Today, we have something very unique to share with you all. It is common for top venture capital firms in Silicon Valley to get all their CEOs together once a year in one room for a CEO summit and speak frankly with them. It is uncommon, however, to allow anything discussed to be shared publicly. Well, today we are doing just that. The good people at Emergence Capital, in particular friend of the show Jake Saper, invited David and I to interview two very heavy hitters at their CEO summit last week, Eric Yuan, the founder and CEO of Zoom, and Peter Gassner, the founder and CEO of Viva Systems. I think this is the first time that any content from any venture firm CEO summit has been specifically created for podcast public consumption. It's so cool. I think Peter has never done a podcast before. I think that's right. And he's built a $20 billion company. Yeah, the Viva system story is amazing. As you will hear, we talk about they raised $4 million. That's four, like one after three. (laughs) And on just that $4 million that they didn't even consume all of that capital. They've now built a $2 billion revenue business with incredible margins. It's such a cool story. And Peter is on the board of Zoom. And so as you'll hear, he and Eric know each other very well. And it's a super different company that we normally talk about too. It's uh, vertical specific. So it's just in the life sciences industry. They sell high dollar software to pharmaceutical companies. And uh, I think biotech as well, right, David? Yep, yep. So the topic that we discussed with both of them is capital-efficient growth, and that's something we felt would be super valuable for all the CEOs in the room, and obviously that means that we think it's going to be really great for everyone to be thinking about right now. So rapid scaling on very little capital is something they obviously both know a lot about. David mentioned the $4 total funding that Viva raised before going public. As you remember from our Zoom episode with board member Santi Subotovsky, also an Emergence Capital partner. Zoom raised $30 million from Emergence and another $100 million from Sequoia afterwards, and they never touched the vast majority, if not all, of those funds. I think they didn't touch any of that $130 million. Eric had raised, as you'll hear about, he'd raised some money from angels along the way, and that funded product development, but none of the venture money was consumed. It's crazy. So if you're excited to learn about how these companies managed to pull off enormous impact with very little capital to do so, you are in the right place. And if you want to discuss these topics with us after you listen, you should come join the rest of the Acquired community. I think we're 12,000 strong now, David, at acquired.fm slash Slack. You should join us. It is always a riot. This will be a great one to discuss in there with the community and other founders, and including Jake Saper himself from Emergence, who's active in the Slack. It's true. All right, well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual 
flesh and blood human people out there. That's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse-native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts, so frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com acquired. Now, as always, this is not investment advice. Please do your own research. David and I may hold positions in things we discuss on this show, and this is certainly not investment advice from anybody that we had on the show today. So now, on to our interview at the Emergent CEO Summit with Eric Yuan and Peter Gassner. So to set the stage, I thought maybe, um, could each of you please give us a brief overview of your fundraising history up to and including Viva and Zoom's IPOs? And Which ordinarily that would take like an hour. This is going to be pretty short. This is going to be about very short. Private <laughs> financing history. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, go, go ahead. Uh, are the simple angel investors when we just started, and then emergence uh, about 15 months in. So angel investors, I think that was three million, and uh, emergence was four million. We never actually used the emergence four million, but I thought. I thought we might at the time, and we got to him within about a hundred thousand of using it, and then, and then we went public. And so how- that, <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
The time frame, we started in uh, 2007 in February, and we raised in about 2008, maybe March or so. So that was the environment at the time. Another very simple time to be fundraising and company building in. Yeah, it was hard to even open a bank account because it was the whole know your customer thing and financial crisis, so everything was hard. Yeah. And I think you know probably most people uh, here here know this, but for for folks listening on the podcast today, you're doing about two billion in revenue at Viva. Yeah, we're doing about two billion, about thirty percent profit or so. Yeah. Amazing, Eric. Could you uh, share your fundraising journey sure, with us? Sure, sure. I started comedy in 2011. First thing I did, I opened up a Wells Fargo bank account. I thought it can, it's very easy for me to raise capital. That's why I opened up a bank account. Unfortunately, it took me for several months. No VCs wanted to invest in me. Unfortunately, I do not know my brother sent any emergency capital. Otherwise, life would be much easier. And finally, and uh, talked to some friends and raised the, the three million seed funding. That's how we started. And for when it comes to Aaron, I try to talk to VC again. And again, nobody wanted to invest us either. So, and uh, you know, we talked to friends and get another six million, and that's how we started. Yeah, it's very hard. And nobody wanted to talk to you at that point because most people assumed video conferencing was either a settled frontier or a race to the bottom. Am I thinking about that right? Absolutely right. That's a theme. Everyone mentioned, Eric, you are crazy. The world does not need to have another video conference solution. And another VC friend, you know, even is his great friend. He, he told me that, Eric, I have a check for you as long as you do something else. <laughs> Good news, I did not listen. I was very stubborn. I should share your story. And once I was stopped by a big VC, I do not want to mention the name. For sure, you guys do not like them. So, and uh, he told me that, Eric, I do not think your strategy works. You know, look at Skype, look at Google Hound, look at WebEx, it's dominating, right? And I, I debated with him a little bit. I failed, and I cannot convince him. On the way back, I told myself, I'm going to change my Windows screensaver. Back then, I still used a Windows machine. I changed the Windows, Windows screensaver. You are wrong. So, <laughs> <laughs> for several years. Yeah. And if wow. just to make sure I have my facts straight, I believe you raised a $30 million round led by Emergence and then another $100 million round after that. And similar to Peter, Peter you did not dip into any of that $130 million. Is that correct? To, to build the business? For me, actually, after the certain meeting you know, from Emergence Capital, I think uh, yeah, we are on the right track. You know, to be honest with you, with you, actually, we even do not need to raise a Series D, actually, because at that time, you know, I think with that certain meeting, I think the company is completely into a, a, I feel like a different game. So, yeah. Wow. What, I mean, that's one thing we wanted to ask is a difference between your two companies. Peter, you obviously, once you got to cash flow profitability, which was immediately, uh, basically, you, you never raised another round. Eric, you did make the decision to raise some more capital even after you were generating cash. Uh, and, and Peter, you were on Eric's board when that process happened. Why did, why did you make that decision? Uh, well, for Viva, I didn't raise more just because I thought I don't need it. You know, it's just that simple, right? So, and then as far as um, for, for Eric, right, when you're on the board, right, that's really Eric's decision. So, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I offered to raise a certain meeting from uh, emergency capital. As, at that time, seriously, we had no plan whatsoever to raise another round of capital. And uh, the reason why we still uh, went move forward to have a series of digs, because I thought the economy will win, will go down right, dramatically. <laughs> so, this was 2017? Uh, 16, 17 high frame. <laughs> I was completely wrong. So, but anyway. So. It had been the seven year bull run. Of course, the, the end was near, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and uh, long story, but anyway. So, yeah. I, I think that. Raising that money at the time, I thought, yeah, maybe we don't need to do it. But also, I thought, it doesn't matter, right? What matters for Zoom is the great product and the customers. Whether you take some more money, you don't take some more money, right? It's all fine. It would all work out. That's why. Yeah. So as we were preparing for um, this interview, our, our first thought was, if we just had one of you up here, 
uh, and we were interviewing you about capital efficiency, it'd be easy to chalk it up to business model and cash flow cycle. You know, multi-million dollar contracts up front on, you know, in the case of Viva or in Zoom, customers flocking with their credit cards uh, for a, you know, a self-serve experience. These are two completely different models. And so I think one of the things that it illustrated to David and I is, uh, capital efficiency is a mindset and culture thing more than a business model thing. And I'm curious to hear both of your reactions to that, but, but also what are the things that enabled you uniquely more so than 99% of startups to be so capital efficient? Well, I can take that one. I, I guess I've seen a little bit of Zoom and a little bit of Viva. Uh, I would say probably it, Starts with a mindset, you know, just run a profitable lemonade stand. From my point of view, for me, it was there's safety in that. Cash generating business is always going to be valuable to somebody. At some point, a business that's not cash generating is going to be valuable to nobody, right? You might be able to sell it before it becomes, it, you know, not valuable, but you can only, there's only, there's security in long term. Uh, you know, so it starts with the mindset. I think Eric uh, shared that. And then uh, you have to have uh, product excellence too, right? And that's something I think Eric and I share. We're both product people. I think also we both worked really hard. You know, we work really hard now. I think especially Eric probably in the first five years, I worked really hard. And I saw, you didn't see me working really hard, but I saw you working really hard. So worked really hard, worked really focused. Anything that wasn't related to the product or the customer was just BS, you know, and, and just don't do it. Like, first five years, I was not at a conference like this, for example, right? I was just maniacally focused. And then the market really helps, too. Um, and that's something you just have to get lucky on, right? You have to, it was the right timing for Viva. It was the right timing for Zoom. Maybe if you started Zoom five years earlier or five years later, it would have been hard, hard. So product excellence, real focus, mindset, and then you have to have some luck in your market. I'm sure there are some things that I could have tried to do or Eric could have tried to do, and it was, we might have picked a bad market, and then, and then it just wouldn't work. And that's, I think you, you have to, so we're outlier, right? And so is Eric, you have to, pick something that most people think is going to fail to be an outlier. Otherwise, by definition, you're picking something that most people think is going to work, and therefore, a lot of people are picking it, therefore, you're not an outlier. So just like Eric, you know, most VCs, all VCs, except for emergence, all, all VCs of any kind of note, except for emergence, turned us down, right? And ours was really simple. Vertical-specific software, that's a small market, and it doesn't work, right? <laughs> That's what they would say. And I was encouraged by that because I thought, well, it has an opportunity to be really good because it's something non-obvious. Well, one thing that I want to double-click on that we were talking about beforehand, um, yes, like you need to be non-obvious to have a chance of a great outlier outcome, but you also need to be correct. Mm -hmm. But I think what you did, what you both did, was not, hey, I'm going to pick some random idea that other people think is crazy. You know, I know Viva has as one of your core values clear and correct target markets that you have yeah. like written on the wall. What, <laughs> what did each of you do, you know, ahead of time that led to you to like really genuinely believe, yes, the world thinks this is crazy, but I, I really think this is going to work. I'll go first. It's real easy. I, I talked to three or four potential customers for our first product and uh, they all said we don't need that you know that's not interesting it's not a good thing to do but I wasn't listening for that I was listening are they emotionally attached to where they're getting their product now are they emotionally attached to those people do I feel like they're getting value out of that thing and I could tell in their responses that they weren't attached and they weren't getting value so yeah all four customers said it's a bad idea <laughs> all right, so let They're me. They're all customers now, though. <laughs> let me understand the Peter formula to build a business. Ask a customer if they want your product. They say no. You dig deeper and say, what are you using now? And they say, oh, yeah, because I have a solution for this, but they just don't love it. So you build for them anyway on the bet that you can be better than their current thing. Yeah, you have to listen to what they feel, not what they say. They would say, yes, we're very happy with this solution. But then you dig, oh, tell me more. Why is that? What is it that you get out of it? And it's like, oh, well, um, uh, and that's when you know. That, that sounds like the video conferencing market circa <laughs> about 2015, 2016. <laughs> 
Yes, yeah, so for me, it's very straightforward because I was a uh, original founding team member of, Web of WebEx. So the year, the two years before I started the company, I know actually, you know, WebEx really sucks, right? So, <laughs> and uh, did you did you try and tell Cisco that? I, I I tell my team. I do not dare dare to tell others. So, but anyway, so uh, Skype also not reliable, right? Google Hangout does not work. Every day I spend a lot of time talking with every customer. I know if I can build a better solution, I think at least I can survive. I never thought about everyone is going to standardize on Zoom platform. But at least I know for sure is if a customer, they do not like something, if you can build something better, you have a chance. Yeah. Eric, did you think from the outset that you were trying to build Zoom as a big company? Or did you just think that you wanted to build a profitable company to survive, and then you would sort of see where it went from there? I think two things. First of all, at that time, my passion was very straightforward because, you know, WebEx is more, like, more like my baby, right? I feel like I worked so hard for so many years. I let the customer down. I really wanted to, wanted to fix that problem. But Cisco did not want me to, to start over. And I had no choice, you know, but to leave to build a Zoom. That's the number one reason. And after I started the company, I realized, wow, it's so hard to raise capital, right? And by the way, the money that investors they give to you, don't think about that money. You know, that's a trust. You know, every dollar matters, right? That's why every day I was thinking about how to survive, how to survive, how to survive. Even today, seriously, I still think about I woke up at night, you know, how to survive. So, the um, you, you mentioned uh, you know, people in your, your team. When you started Zoom, you were a solo founder, but you brought a large number of people with you. Um, you know, one of the kind of first sort of operational topics we wanted to dig into around this this topic of of capital efficient growth is hiring and, and people. Uh, that feels like such an important uh, part of the culture and DNA of having people who are going to get on board with. Yeah, there's not going to be you know the spiritual equivalent of kind bars and you know exposed brick in our in our office here. How how did you select for uh, maybe both of you, but Eric to, Eric to start because you brought so many people with you from Webex. How did you select for the people that you brought? So all of them are very good engineers, right? Except for me. So I, I did not write any code. So and uh, on day one we had around 25. Very soon we 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 get another 15, total 40 people. And myself included. All the certain people, they all write all kinds of code. And this was all funded with angel money. Yes, exactly. Wow. But uh, probably, I know actually, you know, we can, with run rate, probably less than two years, right? That's why later on we had a series A. But uh, we only have engineers just to get the product done. And I'm more like a product manager, UI designer, and also the, the facility guy, everything else, you know? Seriously, on day one, I, I, I bought the, uh, used the furniture. You know, assemble everything by myself, and also write it on the company culture and value. That's pretty much what I did. So it's, I would say, it's, uh, and even for the several, first several years after product ready, and uh, uh, some investor mentioned, hey, you already have money in the bank now. Why not build a, a marketing team? Look at your competitors. They spend a lot of money in all the, you know, billboard and one on one. At that time, I think no. For the first four years, we do not have any marketing team. Only until 2015, we started, you know, building up our marketing team. So, so I just want to make sure have, we have to be very disciplined. Yeah. To just highlight this, so, you know, you started the company with 25, quickly growing to 40 people, but those were 39 engineers and you. No yes. product managers, yeah, no yeah. marketing, no sales. Yeah, yeah. That's the reason why I know how to use QuickBooks. I never know <laughs> how to use that. So I, seriously, I had to learn how to use it. And, uh, so, so it sounds very easy to say, uh, don't buy billboards. Um, you got to get your customers somehow. How did you get the snowball going? Uh, a little bit of lucky, because seriously, and luck does play a role. Because you know, the, the several weeks before we launched the product, seriously, we had no idea how to get a first customer. Luckily, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, the very famous, uh, you know, the uh, uh, reporter, the, the Walter Mossberg, right? He evaluated our service. And we were so nervous, you know, he's very straightforward, right? And the good news, he, he, he did write down a very nice article published in Wall Street Journal. And also he personally recorded a video. And over the night, we got 50,000. 50, 50,000 wow. yeah. uh -huh. users, users yeah, from yeah, that article. Wow. Yeah. 
but most of them they left. You know, after several <laughs> <laughs> after the several weeks. But those who stayed, I imagine that stayed. was the kernel of the, the virality of telling their friends uh, who told their friends who told their friends. I maintain a very good personal relationship with them. Either VIP a con or send them a small gift. And uh, someone they canceled back then when in 1999. I personally sent them an email. Why you cancel our service? What we can do differently? <laughs> and uh, yeah, we still maintain a relationship today, even today. So. Hmm. We, we had uh, some, one of the CEOs wrote in and, and asked us about different metrics to track. W did you have a North Star after you had those 50,000 people where you realized, okay, I'm holding something in my hand and this, the sand could slip through my fingers, but is there something I can measure to see if this 50,000 can turn into something? What were you paying attention to? To, to those of, uh, uh, very early, very loyal early adopters, yeah. you know, even 100 is good enough. They are, they are the early, you know, I would say is the most loyal users, double down to make sure they are happy. If they are very happy, guess what? You know, network effects, they are going to bring a lot of new users. So that's why even 49,000 users left, as long as 100 still stayed, we, we, we doubled on that. So mm. yeah, that's a strategy back then. Yeah. Mm. For Peter on the, hiring and people and organizational front, um, you had a very, very different type of business. Uh, your customers don't buy with credit cards. Right. <laughs> they buy multi-million dollar deals, cash up front in a year for a year deal. Um, you need a sales force to, right. to sell that, which usually means you need a lot of cash comp to compensate that sales force. Right. Uh, how did you think about the right people to hire as you were building and, and, and how to compensate them? Yeah, I think one thing Eric and I have in common are, you know, in the early days, there's no wasted people, like no optional people, no wasted people, because it just adds, A, it'll burn through your money and it'll just make your decision making smaller and, sorry, more complicated. Hmm. It's like sand and machine, so no wasted people. And for us, yeah, we needed because a long sales cycle. So we needed sales right away, right? So yeah, I was the first salesperson, right? I, I started selling before I signed the articles of incorporation, show up at the customer, hey, I think you should buy something for me, this thing that I'm gonna make. Well, do you, have you hired anybody? No. Well, okay, well, can you show us a demo of what you're gonna do? No. How about a PowerPoint? No. Okay, and then come back a month later, I got a PowerPoint now. Have you hired anybody? No, not yet, you know, and then just keep selling because it's a relationship-based business. Funny story, the first customer who bought, small customer, we actually somehow through a relationship with my co-founder, we got to this guy, he was the CEO. He wanted to buy some software for this small department just because he was really peeved with his IT team. So this guy had no idea what we're selling. He's like, I know that my IT team doesn't want you, so I'm gonna make a point and show them <laughs> that I'm actually in charge here. So uh, that's how we got our first sale. And uh, you could barely log into the system at that time. Could you, could you, that's amazing. I didn't know that. But then you gotta hustle, right? Then just like Eric, right? Then you gotta hustle. Oh my God, this customer wants to buy something and then you're working super hard to make them successful. Mm. And Eric, I'm not sure I never asked you about this, but we never had customer satisfaction surveys for Viva in the beginning. I always thought if I talk to those early adopter people, I will know, I will get the feeling. And if I have some survey, maybe I won't get the feeling. Totally, you are right. I, I, I agree with you. You just, yeah. you can hide behind, when it's small, you can sort of hide behind metrics sometimes and it doesn't work. But if you actually talk to the human and you figure it out, you'll know what's going on. Hmm. How, can you tell us also the story of landing your first big customer? The, the big the, customers. The, which I, I believe is probably the deal that really made the business. Yeah. Uh, there was a set, right? There was the first, the, the guy who was just peeved at his IT team and then worked up to the next size deal and the next size deal, and it was always a step function, right? And so the first multi-million dollar annual deals were a, a big customer, Pfizer, and... Uh, it was just hand-to-hand -hand combat. Um, there was a partner at the time, actually, Salesforce.com actually at the time said, oh, you know, send a note that Viva will never win this deal. And I replied back, I said, we, we will win this deal. And They I, sent it to you during the bake-off. Yeah, they didn't want to even come into the meeting with us, right? They were like, oh, we're going to go with this other system integrator or something like that. So uh, 
ICE sent an email back and said, we will win this deal. Why? Because we have better people that'll work harder and we're Pfizer's only shot at greatness and I think they want to shoot for greatness. And so, and, the, and I remember there was this big meeting with Pfizer. There was a guy in there in charge of it and we had a certain amount of people in the meeting and the guy stood up for Pfizer. He said, we have more people in this meeting room than you have in your company. You know, <laughs> why should we buy anything from you? And I just said the same thing. We're your only shot. We're going to make something great and we have the best people. So seems simple to me. And then we got lucky and okay. uh, we won it. And then, and I remember after winning it thinking, oh my God, now what? You know, now how are we going to make them successful? So we, the whole company got a bonus when that customer was what we called live and happy, which didn't have a uh, formulaic metric. It was based on interviews. So did you use the invoice from that customer to then go fund product development? Yeah. I, was, I thought, oh, we've just raised a $3 million round of capital here. And <laughs> it didn't cost us any dilution, right? The check came in. So that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Do you think that's still doable today? Like, I imagine there's lots of folks out there that are like, well, I would love to go invoice a customer and get cash in the bank. And you know, what, what situations is it possible to fund your product uh, with customer revenue versus not? I think it's, first of all, you can't be wasteful. Every person has to matter. I would almost think about, oh, we're hiring that person. Let's say we have to pay them $100,000 a year. I came from, my father was in the business of metalworking and machinery. And he, I remember him, he would like, oh, I got to buy that lathe. How much is that lathe going to cost? Is it worth it? worth it? So I would think of people like, I'm buying a million dollar machine because I got to pay them $100,000 a year. Is that million dollar machine worth it or not? So frugal and then make a really excellent product because that's the best way you can lower your cost of sales. So like Eric's product, you probably all, all notice it that it's easy to use, but he made it easy to consume the whole product. So he didn't have to convince a bunch of people. So that's how to do it. Excellent product, get a good price, easy to consume. You don't have to spend your money on salespeople because you have a differentiated product. Because salespeople, that's where it's really, really expensive. Right. You, you didn't By have the way, any way, I, I, I read uh, the Peter's uh, S1 document many years ago. At that time, I still remember, wow, my God, this is being model is so awesome. So. And, but in our case, our first paid customer, largest paid customer, only 2000 a year. So we cannot <laughs> use that to fund the new product development. Because most of users pay us only for 999 a month, right? So that's really hard. But I do think, you know, for all the founders, right? The business model, very, very, very important, right? If you can figure out a way to do something similar as what Peter and Viva does, uh, that's the best. Do spend time on that. Right, not only for product, but also the business model, right? As Peter mentioned, product excellence and how to sell the product, you know, and how to leverage a big enterprise customer, as is very important. Build a long-term sustainable company. In our case, actually, I can tell you, today the biggest challenge is our online business, hmm. right? It's very profitable. However, it's very hard to predict, right? They come today, next two months, they might leave, they cancel the service. This is not the great business. So, but enterprise portion is very good. You know, that's why I learned a lot from Peter, you know, how to manage a big enterprise customer. We met at an emergence event way back when. That's how we first met Eric and I. Yeah, well. It was smaller at that time. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully there'll be some more connections yeah. like that today. Yeah. One, one um, thing I want to highlight on, on this topic of, of contracts and funding development, because I think it's really counterintuitive. Again, the topic is capital efficient growth. You would think that what you would want to do with the, you know, the Pfizer deal, for example, or Eric, when you started selling enterprise contracts is multi-year deals. Let's get, let's make this contract number as big as possible. Let's get as much cash up front. Let's lock people in for two, three, four years. Uh, that's not what you did at all, right? Yeah, yeah we didn't do that because uh, I, th I was always optimizing for the, the long-term value, which is the annual value per customer. So if I had to give the customer terms that would lock them in, I thought that's actually shrinking my market because they'll pay less if they're locked in. That's one thing. Then the other one, I, I didn't want us sort of getting lazy. I wanted us to earn the business every year. So it was just sort of like that. The driver was really optimizing to the long-term value. Yeah, which is, you know, 
it makes so much sense now thinking about it that you would have had to have given a, I don't know, 30%, 30% annual discount or lock yeah. in the price, then raising prices is harder later. And that's unique to us. I think we're selling in a very confined vertical. So it's not really fair if there's two companies and one, one's paying 30% less than the other and they, they, they end up knowing about it and feel ba feeling bad about it. So, that, so that's something specific to this confined market. And, and to put some shape around it for folks that don't know Viva's business as well, you've a couple thousand customers of which there's a hundred or so that are your like really big customers. Yeah. And there's basically no one else out there who could be a customer without you expanding the market. Right. We, we, have a, we sell into a defined set of customers, life sciences industry, there's kind of top 20 and then there's another thousand or so that are doing smaller things and we've just expanded our product footprint. So when we sell to a customer, we, we might have 20 things that we can sell to them. They start in this area, they start in that area. So uh, Gordon calls it layering the cake, right? We have a lot of lift, different layers to the cake that are all into the same customer. We leverage relationships and we spend, a, it's fine for us to spend $100,000 a year maintaining free relationships mm -hmm. and just putting into developing relationships. That's not wasteful. So because right. we have a lot of, we're showing up the door with $100 million worth of product. Right. So if you have a relationship, it's, it's worth it. Like a bank, a bank, investment banking, it's worth it to invest. So it's a different type of business. For Eric, for, for you, I'm curious, maybe, maybe you can talk to us both in the beginning days and, and then also now at Zoom, how do you think about pricing and account strategy? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, in our case, is a little bit different. You know, ideally, when you start a SaaS company, either focus on vertical market or focus on departments. That's, that's probably the best business model. Unfortunately, you start from building up a horizontal collaboration solution is, is really hard, right? Because, you know, a lot of other competitors are there, right? So our strategy- Including free competitors. Exactly, a lot of, you know, free solutions. So our strategy, you know, more like, uh, you know, you open up a new restaurant business, right? So, and uh, you have a better service, right? And a better price and a better food. That's pretty much even today. You know, we want to make sure our product are better than our competitors. Make sure when it comes to pricing, also better. And they also make sure, you know, offer the best service. So you look at any time our product always, always at better price, you know, across the board, any product compared to any competitors. So life is about trade-offs. And if you're telling a customer, oh, we're better, faster, and cheaper, what has to give? Is it something organizationally? Is there something? Efficiency. Efficiency. Yeah, exactly. You know, see, like a customer, they are, they are probably going to spend a lot of money on, on marketing. You know, what we can do to leverage the network effects, right? You know, they hire like a 100 sales rep. You know, what we can do to have a 50 sales rep, you know, can deliver the same value, right? So that's why it is very important to have, uh, you know, internal, you know, the efficiency, yeah. Which is, you know, it's so funny that that efficiency translates to capital efficiency, which translates to gross margin, well, not gross, to operational margins, which translates to cash flow, totally <laughs> which give, is the whole point. Yeah, give you more flexibility, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I would say the key also is just the product excellence, right? Yeah, and totally. that comes from yeah. the core set of engineers you hired, I think, and then also the you were, you were especially very focused in the early days, right? Totally. You were yeah. not thinking about something else, right? Absolutely. You were thinking about video Absolutely. conferencing. And yeah. I would say, you know, that's why I got to know Eric. I, I got to know Eric. I thought, oh, that's a pretty focused guy. I bet his product is good. <laughs> and then I tried out his product. I'm like, oh, this is, this is really good. I want to join his board. <laughs> so I Thank think you. that's always the product excellence can make you more efficient. Your sales cycle's more efficient. Every, everything's better. If your product was, your product was twice as good as Web, WebEx, right? If your product was only no, no, 10, 10 times better. 10, 10, 10 times better. <laughs> but I guess my point is if your product was only 20% better, yeah. it wouldn't have been enough. It wouldn't you, have mattered. You're so right. That's why I always like this restaurant analogy, right? You know, you store buying a restaurant, a brand new restaurant, it's food that does not work. Even for free, you do not want to store buy it right, anymore, right? So. Yeah. Well, when, um, Again, you know, I think back to the Peter's point, it's extremely important. Right? Everything starts from one thing, the product. Product excellent, that's a foundation. You can optimize a lot of things. If a product does not work, forget it. 
everything else. Just a double down, triple down on the product. That's the number one thing, you know, Peter right on. And that's a lot about people, right, Eric? About yeah. who, which people you put on the product. Yes. Totally. Eric was very particular about getting the yeah. best people. Yeah. yeah, let's, so people, we can come back to that. Um, you know, I remember what we talked about with Santi on the episode we did on Zoom's IPO years ago now. Um, you know, your named executive officers in your S1 were not like you think typical, oh, here's high-flying SaaS company. There's going to be a VP of sales from Salesforce. There's going to be a chief marketing officer from HubSpot, you know, whatever. Like, not, and nothing wrong with those companies and those people. But uh, I think at both of your companies, the people you brought in as leaders were up-and-comers. They weren't, you know, the, the established superstars. Yeah, I, I think you... I always wanted to have some people with some range. You know, they could get very hands-on, but also grow into managing. I guess I've always thought to try to get people to do something that they haven't done before, you know, so they would have a little bit more mojo, have an opportunity to do something that they haven't done before. And uh, the team is very important. The chemistry of the team is much more important than the skills of the individual players. Um, in in a lot of ways, that comment reminds me, there's a parallel between you not signing multi-year deals where you're forcing the product to earn the customers and you promoting internally where you're keeping people hungry and forcing them to do their best work to earn that job. Well, it's more thrilling when you can give somebody a chance to do something that they haven't done before for, for me and for them. There's more fulfillment. Otherwise, it's why well, you're doing the same thing you've done three times, and what's the allure? Well, I can get rich. A kid just at some point, it, that doesn't keep you going at the end of the day. Would also come, I imagine there's an element of compensation to this strategy too, which translates to capital efficiency. Um, no, not really, no. no. I always no. think of equity versus cash, but. Uh, mm, I don't think so. I never really made any kind of decision on people based on that. You get to get the right, the right person and then pay the right compensation for the right person. But always the right person first and then figure out the compensation. Hmm. Peter right on. Actually, back then, when we, try, when we tried to make an offer, right, to some executives, right, you know, at that time, you know, the feedback, why not hire someone very experienced in season the leaders from all sides? It's not really not about a comp package because, you know, when it comes to hiring, you know, at a Zoom, we really like to hire those people with a self-motivation and a self-learning mentality, right? Including the senior executives. And they can grow themselves along with their company growth. And plus, you know, they are very loyal. I think that's our, that was our philosophy. I, I thought that's the best philosophy. After the COVID, I think I was, I was wrong, actually. There's a bigger flaw also. Because when business auto-grows auto your team, and guess what? The executives or team, they are not ready. You know, like usage, like 15 times, 20, 20 times more. <laughs> the revenue, like seven times more. You know, our team, even not myself included, even not twice better. This is one challenge, right? I learned, that's a mistake. Another mistake is we think all those executives or key team members, they can learn along with the company growth. However, the pace is different. Right, you know, some ways can learn quickly, some are very slow, right? That's why, also, that's another flaw, right? That's why, looking back, I feel like, ah, we should have a mixed, you know, team structure, right? Someone, you know, they have a potential, mm. they can grow, grow themselves. Someone else, you have to hire some seasoned leaders. You never know, right? In case, you know, suddenly your business is going to take off. At that time, your team is not ready. You know, that's a challenge we are facing today, so. So you need to have some members of the team who have experienced scale bigger than your company, but other people that you're developing. Exactly, or... that's a healthy mix. You know, back then prior to pandemic, you know, I was, I think uh, too stubborn, I should learn more from Peter, <laughs> is I think everyone, you have to have a potential. You do not even have a greater background. Actually looking back, that's not right. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Maybe a mix would be better. Mix is much better. Do you think that applies even, do you think you should have done that even in the early stages of the company? Not early stage, right? You know, for the first four years, no need. But down the road, you, you already see the market fit, right? The product fit. You want to scale your business. At that time, you have to change your philosophy. Hmm. Yeah. There's another, I just keep, these parallels keep popping up for me where Zoom is one of the greatest product-led growth companies of all time. Um, and yet here you are talking about the beauty of predictable revenue that comes from enterprise contracts. And it's, it's the same thing. It's not that 
experienced people are better or that in-house talent is better is that you need that mix. Totally, yeah. yeah. Healthy mix is very important, yeah. Hmm. So the last, um, one of the last uh, sort of disciplines within a software company um, that I want to talk about operationally in this context is marketing uh, with, with both of you, but particularly with Eric. <laughs> we were uh, chatting with Santi and, and with Peter. Um, you know, we sort of asked this question where like, you scaled, once you had the product developed, you scaled with such beautiful capital efficiency, but you did spend money on marketing. I mean, you joked about the billboards, but there are Zoom billboards now. Um, uh, and I asked them, you know, how did, how did Eric and Zoom think about spending money on marketing? Um, and, uh, well, I'll let you tell the punchline, but uh, uh, how, how did you think about it? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, yeah, even today, you know, every Tuesday, you know, we have a three hours, uh, you know, stuff meeting, right? You know, this morning, the first topic, read about reviewing our marketing, top 10 marketing programs, even today still. I think it's very tricky. The reason why is you do not have, uh, I would say is a sort of like a, a formula, right? You know, when to spend more, when to spend less. It's not like that. As a founder, you know, you have to spend time on marketing as well. Do not always focus on product or the sales. Marketing also is very important, right? However, when to invest in marketing is very tricky. Every business is different. In our case, we specifically, you know, uh, made a decision. No marketing team for the first several years. You know, because this is not something new, right? This is a product or, you know, this is very, very, you know, mature market. Everyone understands video conferencing. You know, how, if your product works, you really don't have a marketing team, right? We, we try to prove that point. You know, after that, after we have paid a customer, a lot of customers, a customer told us, Eric, I never heard about Zoom, but I tried to product, the product works. Right? Why is that? We received a very consistent feedback like that. I know that's a signal, right? Then we doubled down on that. Then 2015, we created a marketing team. And also, even after that, we also measure every marketing program spending. Early on, I spent a lot of time trying to understand. I'll give one example, like SEM, right? Every company, you, you spend money on SEM. First time I, I sent a check, oh my God, this is, this is the price we paid to Google. <laughs> oh my God, this is, this is the largest check I'm going to sign. Do you I remember how large that check was for context? That's uh, more than 200,000 a, a month. A month, oh my goodness. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, that's why I say I wanted to deep dive to understand. You know, but by the way, the marketing team is all very well educated by Google, right? In more like they talk about our way. You give me one dollar, I give one dollar fifty cents back. You know, it's let's right? do that. It's pretty cool, right? Yeah. But I tell them, no, you should have three dollars back. <laughs> Why? <laughs> right. so, well, I particularly want to ask it, you about uh, exactly. the time frame you wanted time that money back. How to optimize that, right? And again, marketing team very important, but quite often very creative, right? If you do not know how to measure that, do not spend. <laughs> That's the, okay. the stories we heard were, you know, most founders, CEOs, marketing teams think about CAC to LTV with marketing, you know, and there's more complexity to it than that, but I'm going to spend a dollar, I'll get a dollar fifty, or I'll get three dollars back. If that pays back in within a year, I'm Don't doing great. Don't believe that. That's yeah, a yeah, mistake yeah. for all the SaaS companies. <laughs> it's, it's not one dollar fifty cents back, not three dollars. Should be four dollars, right? It's optimize. Just went up in the last minute. Yeah, <laughs> but, but, uh, that, that's but, a common mistake, I think, for most of the SaaS companies. And, and Eric, when, how, how fast should it pay back? As I would say, it's. Uh, as big as possible, right? It's got to, every brain is different, but you got to optimize. You keep optimize every day. Do not feel satisfied. Oh, give one dollar, get one dollar fifty cents back. No, optimize. Got to get one, two dollars, two, you know, three dollars, right? You have to optimize. This is one example, right? For every marketing dollars. However, if it works, you have to double down. I remember, you know, first time I had a, you know, uh, the billboard in one one. You know, many customers shared a very positive feedback with us. They feel like, ah, oh, early on, we decided to deploy Zoom. I, I saw the billboard. I feel like you guys are a bigger company. We made the right decision, right? To bet <laughs> it was on more Zoom. about validating well, exactly. the decision then. Exactly. And plus, the employees, they feel very happy, right? They say, oh my God, Zoom has a billboard now. After that, I realized, why not a double down on that? I told our team, how many billboards do we have in one? This one. I said, no, three. <laughs> <laughs> it works. Yeah. So you, that's why you have to know when to double down, when to take step back. You know, if you know how to effectively measure that, that's very important. 
Well, we spent most of today talking about how to um, build the castle and you know how to be how to have a profitable castle. I'm not sure what that really extends, but now let's talk about the the defending the castle. I'm curious, um, maybe let's start with Eric and then go to Peter since we've been on a good Zoom streak. Where do you see the source of Zoom's defensibility as a business over the next 30 years? Yeah, so, you know, I think it's more like a sports, right? We've, we need to focus on both offense and defense, right? So both sides, right? So I think back to the Peter report, you still needed to even your product is, is works today, even better than any other competitor. You have to be paranoid, right? You have to keep thinking about what you can do differently. Keep innovating, keep innovating. Either the new services or new features, right? That's the, that's the most important thing, right? By doing that, at, is, at the same time, you know, you also need to think about what's next, right? You know, from our perspective, right? We started from a unified communication. The next step will be, you know, the, not a unified uh, communication, it's collaboration platform, right? At the same time, how to build multiple new departmental applications? You know, you also need to play offensive as well. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the better offensive play is probably is, is for the defense as well, right? So that's our strategy, yeah. Mm -hmm. Peter? Uh, I'm very similar. So product excellence is you, 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 you can get there, but you also gotta work hard to stay there. Right, and, and keep reinventing yourself. Uh, also, you do want to expand to different areas because if critically, and I think uh, something that people don't realize, if you, if you get a high market share in an area and you don't expand to another area, what will happen just because the nature of your company and the creative people, you'll do more stuff in your established area than you should. Right? And that creates its own set of problems. If you do more stuff in, you know, if Eric is constantly rewriting his codec unnecessarily, right? It's, it's disruptive. So you gotta expand to give yourself a creative outlet. And then that, this may be more particular to us, I don't know, but we also have a goal that we set out about five years ago to be the leader in light. That was our code name for it. Because uh, if, you, if you get to be quite dominant, um, arrogance is your, there's a few things that will knock you off. Arrogance, the customers will get turned off over that and they'll, they'll naturally find an escape hatch. Also, we, we audit for integrity of the leadership team because when you're, when you're quite well established, that can throw you off. Integrity, integrity issues in the leadership team, so we audit myself and others, and also energy in the leadership team. Because these are things that you gotta audit for them because if you, if you wait for the results to show those things, it's too late. So, you know, Determined to have product excellence, have a goal to be the leader in liked. We actually tell our customers about that, and that holds us to a higher standard. So we want to be the leader in liked. And then they bring that up sometimes. Like, hey, that's not the leader in liked. Oh, God, why did I tell you that? You know? But, I mean, it's a way to be, set yourself out there, right? Not only do we want to be the leader, we want to be liked. Product innovation as an outlet. Um, and then avoid avoid that arrogance. You talked about. Yeah, but by the way, I think related to this question, I want to share with you a conversation I had with Peter. I think probably can help some of the the founders here as well. I think the I forgot which quarter a year before we went public, and I look at our growth plan. I realized, wow, we wouldn't have one service, right? If we have another service, we also can monetize. You know, the the growth trajectory tra 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 be very different. At that time, Peter told me that Eric. That, uh, that's sort of like that ideal case. But that decision should be made two years ago or three years ago, right? If you wanted to have a new service, you cannot have a new service today, right? You need to think about, you know, trying to make a decision two or three years you know, before that, right? That's, I, I clearly remember that conversation. You know, that's why, that's, looking back, that's the biggest mistake, the biggest mistake. The reason why, you know, because you have one service, at the same time, how to think about what's the next service, right? You know, always plan ahead, right? This is probably the, the better way, right? Back to your question. You know, always think ahead and build another service, another service. So mm. that's that's exactly what I was going to ask as a follow-up, um, Peter. I know you Viva launched a second service after the first CRM service uh, around around um, content CMS content management. Um, when did you start planning for that second product, and then when did you launch it relative uh. to your your first product? That was, we started thinking about it the first part of 2010. Uh, I remember Gordon and I and others started thinking about it the first part of 2010. So we had uh, 150 people in the company or something like that. That was four years into the company, uh, three, four years? So into three and a half, yeah. 
And then we made our first hire in the fall of 2010, and that's when we started going. So I viewed that as critical. It was a turning point. I thought, hey, I could have a single product company, do really well of that, maybe go public, but it, then it probably has to be sold to somebody or something like that, or I can try to make it a multi-product company. And the decision was to pick something that was clearly not an add-on to our first product. Like it was clearly so far away from our first product. I was worried that our second product would maybe become an add-on to our first product. And so I just picked something that was just way out here, mm. just way, way different. Sold into the same company, but different buyer, different product, different code line, different everything. So I thought, this is a way to become a multi-product company and it'll either make us or it'll break us. And I thought the odds were more likely that it was gonna sink us. That's so counterintuitive, because normally you would think you'd wanna give the same sales rep something that they could sort of bundle in for an incrementally higher ticket price yeah. and leverage what assets you already have. But that you will do anyway. Like if you don't go out of business, gravity will take you there, right? It's as you go along, it's like, oh, well, maybe we should make an add-on product or not. Like, yeah, duh, you know? <laughs> but if you, if you get confused, um, you know, and you think that add-on product is really gonna float your boat, it's not. Your, your new product, if you have a chance, it should be way out here and maybe have the potential to be bigger. So that's, but what, it's risky. What's the right? scale of the two rev revenue lines today? Uh, they're, the second one is a bit bigger, um, but the second one has also quite a bit more potential. You know, maybe it's a 5X or 10X potential. Wow. But it was risky, right? We debated that at the board level because that could have sunk the company because our rocket ship on our first product was going up. And we, right, we had to take our, I had to take my eye off that ball to start this thing. And it, it did cause that first thing to suffer. But overall, the trade-off was worth it. But it could have worked. It was risky. Our, our most recent episode was about NVIDIA, which had a uh, tiger by the tail with gaming, as everyone knows. They totally took their eye off that ball to start building for life sciences, for um, scientific computing, for what became neural networks and, and machine learning. And boy, was it a good thing they took their eye off that ball. You know the hidden thing that, there? You need a CEO that was an engineering type that went to Oregon State University. Because <laughs> that's what NVIDIA and Viva have in common. I don't know him, but we, we both, well, there are very few of us Oregon State Beavers as CEOs, let me tell you. <laughs> it is, it, that's an amazing company. I know Jensen well, actually. Look, look at NVIDIA's stock price. It was flat 10 years in a row yeah. it before was, they took off. It, that's such an amazing uh, story. Amazing. I mean, the, the conviction, yeah. really, he had to persevere through that decade is amazing. Yeah. It's hard work, right? He's a hard yeah. worker. Yeah, he's too. a very, very hard, hard worker. Work. That's yeah. also, he, he is focused. <laughs> yeah, there's very no, hard. I remember when starting Viva, the first time I started a company, I asked a friend who had started some other companies, because I, I, I realized about three months in, God, this is really hard work. I'm working <laughs> every day really hard, every hour. So I asked my friend, is there any way to do this without working that hard? And he very quickly said, no, <laughs> there's not. <laughs> so. Isn't that true, Eric? That's right. true. It's, the good news is I do not think that's a work because we all enjoy that. Right? Yeah. This is a part of life. What are, otherwise, what can you do? Are you going to play golf? No. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? so uh, There's no shortcut. Exactly. No shortcut. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote-unquote, energy happens. 
as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com slash acquired. That's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes. All right, well, we, uh, we got to wrap, but there's a, a quick way that we end every Acquired episode, which is with grading. And for companies that are in the middle of their journey, like both of yours, um, we like to ask it as a little bit of an open-ended question. What makes the future of Zoom and Viva an A+. What's the like scenario where it goes incredibly well? Paint that for us. And what's the failure case? Oh, let's see. I don't spend any time thinking about the failure case, honestly. I just not wired that way. A plus is we really help automate this big industry, right? It's a two two trillion dollar industry. And if we can help to automate it and be that trusted partner that that is essential to that industry and using that word very specifically essential and appreciate it. There's not been anything like that before where you're automating a whole industry in a meaningful way, right? Essential. You're going to be a life sciences company. You got to use Viva and man, you like that. You, so that would be a big success. And then we have a bit of a social mission too, to prove that you can, you know, you can be a good company profitable, et cetera, but also be a, a good contributor to society and, and the employees. So that would be success. You, and you were the first public company to convert to a B corporation? Uh, uh, to a public benefit corporation. But that's just the more the formality of it. It's, you know, the way we've operated the company is always like that. So that's success. So essential, appreciated, really automating this industry and contributing to a good, you know, being an example of a good employer so that other people could copy it. Love that. Yeah, so in our case, I would say the, that's a good question. A plus scenario would be, you know, Zoom will be a very successful platform company. We are going to introduce multiple new services and uh, people can count on Zoom to achieve more. At the same time, we can also grow our revenue every year. That's probably A plus scenario for many years to come, right? In terms of a failure scenario, I would say maybe you go back to use WebEx. That's a failure scenario. So, <laughs> and uh, yeah, Peter, right. And I did not think about the failure scenario, but we just think about it, be very optimistic, think about the future. Otherwise, seriously, you know, we're all founders, right? The CEOs, we all feel the huge pressure. But sometimes you cannot be, you know, too paranoid. Otherwise, every day you think about too much about a failure case, failure case, guess what? you do not dare to move forward, right? right. So that's why I say, do not, do not think about that. So next time, do not ask me this question. <laughs> <laughs> so, so only the paranoid survive, but don't let it consume you. Yeah. I think kidding. you're paranoid yeah. about not doing your best, right? I think, Eric, you put a ton of pressure on yourself. You, you, you don't feel good if you don't do your best, right? Totally. So I think that's, totally. I see that in Eric. I love that. Well, right. Thank you all. Thank you for being here in the room with us. And uh, mostly, thank you to both of you. Thank you to Emergence for facilitating this, making it happen. And, yeah, but thank you, Emergence Capital. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you, all of you. I really appreciate it. Thank you, my great mentor, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks, thanks to, thanks thank to you. that group. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. All right, listeners. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this. I actually cannot imagine a more useful topic right now than dissecting how to build great companies on little capital uh, based on the era that we're going into. I think, you know, David and I don't need to debate this endlessly. Like you can hear the the drum beats on Twitter of how much the market is changing. But, um, you know, the reality is it is. And where everyone has to play the game on the field. And, uh, Peter and Eric have have just it's just unbelievable and impressive the, what they have built on so little capital. They're two of the greatest of all time, literally two of the goats at this, which is so funny, you know, now everybody thinks of Zoom as the, you know, pandemic, you know, high flyer and it's like I was just thinking every time for the last few years like that people would talk about Zoom in whatever context I'm like 
do you, you people realize how much cash flow this company is generating? <laughs> and it's all because of you know this DNA and mindset and everything we talked about with them. And after spending time with Eric, I mean, it feels to me like the amount of time that he spends thinking about, oh no, the stock was going crazy and oh no, now it's going down is like approximately zero. They're thinking about how do you build a great company and how do you generate happiness for customers build a profitable enterprise and grow that profitable enterprise. And it was a nice, refreshing viewpoint to get to spend time with him and Peter. Well, if you want to chat about this with us, uh, we would love to do that with you. You should join the Acquired Community Slack at acquired.fm slash Slack. 12,000 smart, courteous, and uh, kind people have done so before you. So you would be in great company. We also have our limited partner show, and if you want more Acquired between uh, now and our next special, which we have recorded and is awesome and we are very excited to release, uh, you can search Acquired LP Show in any podcast player, Spotify, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you listen to podcasts and find that there. We have a job board, acquired.fm slash jobs, where we curate the most interesting jobs that we think we should make available to the Acquired community. Huge thanks as well to our friends at Emergence for making this possible. That's so true. I'm so happy I'm wearing my Emergence Capital Fleece right now. You got to rep the swag with pride. Got to rep the swag. Seriously, I was thinking as you were saying that, I mean, I know we talk about the Slack at the beginning and end of every episode. It really is like, it's not just like, oh, you should join the Slack because you like acquired. Like, you know, if you're listening to this, you are probably a founder, an employee, an investor, you know, working at companies of any size where this is relevant and so is everybody else and people are like this community is amazing people are talking about this in slack jake from emergence is right there in (laughs) slack to talk about this uh you know people dm each other there's so much vibrant discussion can't underline it enough it's such a great part of the acquired community and if you're not part of it you should absolutely join that you should all right listeners we'll see you next time we'll see you next time who got the truth Is it you, is it you, is it you who got the truth now, huh?